Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. This week, teacher activism came close to home, here in Oakland, right outside from where we are recording this podcast. Just weeks after the Los Angeles Unified Teachers' Strike ended, Oakland teachers voted overwhelmingly by a 95% margin, authorizing their union to declare a strike. We'll talk with Teresa Harrington, who has been following the strike closely. We'll also talk with Larry Gordon about the efforts at the California State University system to bump up graduation rates. But first, let's talk about Oakland. There have been a number of rallies to support the teachers, including one across the street outside City Hall. As you will hear, emotions are running high in the city. No one person going to win a struggle alone. And so... When you sing it right now, think of that as your gift to the person next to you. It's your gift to the other teachers you love. It's your gift to the students you love. And we're going to do it like that. All right, let's go. It's going down. We throwing down because Oakland is a union town. Say, oh. Our ace reporter Zadie Stavely talked to some teachers during the rally about why they want to go on strike. My name's Sylvianne Cohn. I teach at Joaquin Miller Elementary. This is my 12th year of teaching in Oakland. As a career educator right now, teaching in Oakland doesn't seem sustainable for most teachers, um, which I think is really awful. Um, the students of Oakland need so many things that they're not receiving right now. Support staff is a huge one that we've seen at our site. Um, nurses, psychologists, therapists, resource specialists. Teachers can't stay in Oakland. Um, one of my good friends left because she knew she was never going to pay off her student loans teaching in Oakland. And it's really awful. My name is Marisa Villegas and I work at Madison Park Academy. I teach ninth grade ethnic studies. I've seen this district go through um, lots of broken promises, uh, lots of very ineffective leadership and, and we're, we're just tired of it. Um, the, stu the students are suffering, the teachers are suffering, the entire community is suffering. I think LA helped a lot. I think the strikes that we saw taking place across the country, Arizona, Oklahoma, have definitely galvanized. But I think it's also just, you know, we're, we're tired. We're tired of this. We're tired of being stepped on. We're tired of being ignored. And we're we're just, we're ready for change. My name's Kampala Taze Rancifer, and I work at Encompass Academy, and I teach first grade. I'm fighting for a living wage, um, smaller class sizes uh, for my students, and, you know, we really want to have some student supports. We're pleased to have Ed Source reporter Teresa Harrington with us in the studio to give us a quick update on where things stand in Oakland. Teresa, is it certain that teachers will go on strike? Or what is the current situation? It's not certain, but it's definitely looking that way. Both the district and the teachers' union are preparing for that. Um, the teachers' union is making signs, and some students are walking out of classes, and the both the union and the district are starting to inform parents and staff about contingency plans if that should occur. And some people are looking to create strike schools or safe spaces where students could gather if they decide not to go to school and cross the picket line. And they're all waiting for the fact-finding report, which is supposed to be coming out by February 15th, which will be um, by a neutral person who will look at both sides and decide 
what how much money the district really has to offer teachers and what kinds of concessions it could make and what kinds of concessions the teachers might have to settle for. Okay, so there's not going to be a strike before the 15th, right? So it's not like imminent. Right. Um, it definitely can't happen before the fact-finding report comes out and then both sides have a little bit of time to look at the fact-finding report before it's made public, and then the union said they would need to give a minimum of 48 hours notice before they go on strike. So people are thinking it might happen the week of President's Day or possibly the week after that. I have to ask you, they do the fact-finding report for a reason. I mean, surely that would have some impact on whether the teachers' union decides whether to go out on strike or not. You would think it should have uh, an impact, and certainly I heard from one of the people who was on the negotiating team that there were things that were surfaced during the fact-finding hearing that the district brought forward that could end up in the fact-finding report. What they were saying is that basically is a starting point for them to try to reach a settlement. Okay, so before I let you go, what are just some of the key issues that still have to be resolved? One of the big issues is pay. Um, The teachers are asking for 12% over three years, and the district has so far offered 5% over three years. Also, class size. Teachers want um, reduced class sizes, especially for caseloads where there are students who are high-needs students. And also... um, other supports such as nurses and counselors. The district says that it's a district of full-service community schools, but it's having some trouble actually reaching that goal. Some of the issues you've raised sound very familiar. These were some of the issues that were on the table in Los Angeles. To what extent is the experience in L.A. having an impact on what's happening in Oakland? Is that inspiring teachers to say, we need to go out on strike like L.A. did? Or is it saying, well, you know, in L.A., the teachers actually didn't get more in terms of salaries, at least, at the bargaining table after the strike. So wouldn't that be kind of a cautionary tale? I have asked that question, and overwhelmingly what I'm hearing is the L.A. strike definitely is inspiring them. There was someone who spoke at the city council meeting the other night saying that it was practically like a party down there, having the community rallying with them, and they really felt a sense of solidarity with union members throughout the state. I think Oakland is picking up on that vibe, and they're cruising into this with a lot of optimism because they are getting a lot of support from parents and students and community members and the city council. But the issue of whether they'll get all their demands met kind of remains to be seen. I have to say, I did go to one of the rallies this week. A lot of energy, a lot of strike signs. So it really looks to me like the union is poised to go out on strike. So thank you, Teresa. Keep us posted. I know you'll be following this in the weeks to come. I will. Thank you. We're now going to look at a different part of the education system, the big push at the California State University and its 23 campuses to improve graduation rates. We're pleased to have Larry Gordon, our reporter based in Los Angeles, who's been tracking graduation rates. Larry, you were able to get your hands on the graduation rates at specific campuses, and you found large disparities amongst the campuses, and there's still quite a ways to go before the campuses reach the goals set by the system. To be honest, I was really shocked at the range that some schools have fairly decent graduation rates, like uh, San Luis Obispo graduates 52% in four years and more than 70% in six years. 
but it goes as low as less than 10% in four years at Cal State LA. The range is really vast, and I had not been fully aware of the campus-by-campus differences because the system-wide officials often just talk about the aggregate system-wide average of all the campuses, all the students put together, and using those figures kind of mask some of the weaknesses around the system. Larry, what were the goals, or what are the goals for the entire system? The goal overall for a four-year rate is to raise from now 25% getting out in in four years to 40%, and to raise the six-year rate from what's now 61% up to 70%. So that six-year rate seems to be pretty doable, and they're on their way to do that. The four-year rate, you know, as, as people have said, is going to be a heavy lift and, you know, remains to be seen whether they could hit that. Each campus has been assigned its own goals for 2025, and those also range very widely. And the system itself has its own average goal. Well, that seems sort of reasonable, given that the student bodies at these campuses are very different. I mean, the highest graduation rate is at San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, as we know it. Right. And that's a hugely selective school. And then Cal State LA has a different population. Yeah. That's why they're arguing why different campuses need and deserve separate goals. I mean, it's as difficult to get into... Uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as it is to get into some of the most difficult UCs, whereas it's not as difficult to get into Cal State LA. And the students who are getting into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, you know, in general have much higher academic achievements in high school, higher GPAs, higher SATs, and also often come with fewer responsibilities, you know, fewer uh, of them are, are need to work on jobs outside of school. There's fewer students who are parents. So you know, they're definitely different demographics. So they said to meet those different demographics, they should have different expectations. Well, let me ask you then, what are these schools doing to, I wouldn't say bump up is the wrong word. I mean, 9.5% graduation rate, four-year rate at, at Cal State LA. I mean, that, that's such a long way to go. Yeah. Well, the CSU says it's doing many things. You know, they began this initiative around three years ago to get the graduation rates improved by 2025. And over the past two years, they've gotten a total $150 million in extra spending from the state. With that, they've added, they claim, more than 4,000 course sections around the universities. One of the biggest complaints students say is that, yeah, we want to get out in four or six years, but we keep trying to and keep getting rejected from registering for these classes. The crowding is so bad. So they're saying, first of all, you know, hiring faculty to teach these other classes will make more classes available and get students out faster. They're also doing a lot of things like hiring extra counseling to make sure students are following a path of, of taking the right classes, not getting lost in unnecessary classes, not getting lost in electives that may be appealing but don't get them out the door. They're campaigning a lot with issue with slogans, you know, finish in four, just to make sure that students are actually taking enough credits. There had been this um, tradition of taking only 12 units a semester instead of the 15 that get you out in four years. And there had been a, a much more lackadaisical approach to taking full loads of classes. They say now they're really pushing students to take a full load. And in fact, at some schools, they're automatically registering students for 15 units 
and letting that be the default, and the students have to opt out to take fewer units. You know, they're taking a lot of different steps. Wow, Larry, it sounds like they really are trying to bump up these graduation rates. One of the things you noted also is that these figures may be a little deceptive or maybe disappointingly low because it really takes time for these all these initiatives to have an impact. The officials at the university say that, you know, this just began a couple of years ago and the students who are most directly affected are really now only just, you know, juniors. It's too early to see how this will affect them. And the other big change, which we've written a lot about, is the end of non-credit remedial courses in the CSU. You know, if you in, in the old days, if you had come in and tested poorly in math or English, you had to take sometimes, you know, even three semesters worth of remedial classes that didn't help you earn any degree credits. Now with that gone and students being placed in credit-bearing classes that offer them extra help, you know, they'll be going directly into the path toward graduation. So that should have a big step too. But that just fully, fully took effect this year. So that's going to take a number of years to see how much, you know, that will help students or maybe even, you know, on the negative could possibly drive away students if if they're not able to succeed in those classes. Hopefully they won't be driving students away. But Larry, you'll be tracking this. Thanks for drilling down on these individual campuses because really it's kind of giving a much fuller portrait of where things stand with the graduation initiative at CSU. Thank you. Happy to do it. On another note, California this week finally released, without any fanfare, the list of nearly 800 schools that ranked in the lowest 5% in the state based on a variety of measures. Next week, we'll talk with John Fensterwald, who had the audacity to leave town on vacation, about how different this list is from the thousands of schools previously identified as needing improvement under the No Child Left Behind law. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from Ed Source's Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Thanks for listening.